I'm Ben Horowitz from Andreessen Horowitz, and I was the CEO, and I wrote some books on kind of how to manage and do that kind of thing. And with me, I've got Ali Goetze, who's the uh, founder, CEO of Databricks, um, a company that he's built from nothing to really big. You may have read that. So we are going to talk about all the things that are challenging um, about being a boss uh, <laughs> or being a CEO or being a manager. Uh, so we'll get right into it. And we have a bunch of kind of questions and things that we've gotten from CEOs in the portfolio um, that uh, should be interesting for everyone. So let me start with the first one, which is I laugh before I read it because it's funny. But Ali, have you ever made any hires that you have regretted? How oh, come? Yeah. That's a good yeah. one. By the way, we all have. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. I mean, definitely. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, in the early days, you have, you know, you're not sure. You know, there's some things you're hesitating about. And, you know, and then you just, you know, pull the trigger. And lo and behold, uh, soon you'll realize that, you know, those things, those kinks that showed up in the interview process, um, they start getting accentuated because, Guess what? When they were interviewing with you, they were putting on their best behavior. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I'm usually actually when I part ways with someone, I can go back to the when I interviewed them back in the day, years back. And I can even see signals in some of the sort of, oh, you know, they were bad at this. That actually kind of showed up already when they were interviewing. Somehow I just missed it. Well, so you, didn't, you, didn't, you didn't miss it. You chose to ignore it. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I've done that myself. That's why I know that's true. Yeah, yeah the, the psychology other, is so hard, right? The psychology of yeah. it, because, you know, you want to, you know, at some point there's so much self-defense mechanisms and you want to make the hire go and you've gone at it for a long while. You've done the search and, yep. you know, you're down to this finalist. And it's like, if you had to start all over, you just like lose three months. So like you get into this psychological place where you're trying to just trying to get the, you know, just trying to get the hire done. Uh, so, yeah, you're absolutely choosing to ignore the, the flaws. Yeah, yeah, no question. The other thing that I always find is, um, you know, and every CEO, by the way, in our entire portfolio has made <laughs> that, that I've ever kind of interacted with has made hiring mistakes, you know, once you get past the early stages. Like there, there's this honeymoon uh, part where they haven't made any mistakes and they think they're never going to make a mistake, but that always changes. And the reason is, or one of the reasons is, you know, you're hiring things that you haven't done. Like when you're an engineer and then you become an engineering manager, you know what that job is and you know exactly what you're looking for, but you become a CEO. Like you've not been a CFO. You've not been a head of HR. How do you even know what that is? And if you don't know what it is, then like, how do you evaluate somebody in depth? And that just takes practice to develop a process for understanding that. It's kind of, I always liken it to, um, you know, okay, you're hiring a Japanese interpreter, but you don't speak Japanese. Like, I guarantee you every interpreter is going to sound great to you because <laughs> they all sound <laughs> like they speak Japanese, right? Like, and that's kind of, they all sound like they speak HR. Uh, and then you end up hiring on dumb stuff like look and feel. It looks like head of HR. It looks like head of sales. And that's when you really screw it up. So, yeah, you always make hiring mistakes. And um, one of the most important things you learn as a CEO is, okay, I don't know what that position is. I don't know what a CFO does. How how can I go talk to like five really good CFOs? What do I ask them? You know, like 
what do you look for in a CFO? Why do you look for that? What's the difference between a good CFO and a great CFO? Why is that? You know, what do you do all day? Like all these kinds of things and start to build up a framework so you can start to evaluate uh, some of these people that you're hiring. But um, yeah. Also, <laughs> anyway, you know, also oh, some, people just, some people just interview well and others don't. You know, I mean, I'm still to this day, uh, you know, surprised. I mean, actually, I joke about it that, you know, one of our best engineers at Databricks, I was a firm no on him, you know, because, yeah. you know, in the interview process, he kept asking me, you know, what's, 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 what's your answer to this? And I would give him an answer and say, yeah, I knew that. And he kept doing this. <laughs> and towards the end, I was like, why are you asking me all these questions if you know all the answers? You know, and then the last thing he asked was, I was okay, do you have any questions? Any final question? He said, yeah, uh, what's work-life balance like? That's really, really important to me. That's like the most important <laughs> thing to me. And we were like a 10-person startup. So I was like, this is yeah. not going to work out. Like, you know, I'm a firm no on him. But then yep. we had him actually do a coding assignment and we did some backdoors and it was the most pristine thing that anyone ever turned in. And, you know, at this point, he's, you know, the highest ranked, one of the most influential engineers at Databricks. Uh, so some people <laughs> yeah. interview well and some yeah. people don't interview well. And, you know, I think interviews are high signal to noise ratio. So I take them yeah. with a huge grain of salt. And also, you know, asking about work-life balance is a tricky one, right? Because you don't know why they ask that. That could be that there are so many reasons why somebody would ask that question, right? Like it could be that they just got into an argument with their spouse and the spouse was like, you're never home. Well, look, that's obviously like a crazy hardworking person who got into that fight. And so you just totally misinterpreted what they asked you. So it is very tricky. Um, well, I why, clarified yeah. it with him. Yeah, because, you know, we were yeah. like, we had this whole thing in the beginning, grit and hard work. So I kind of clarified yeah. it with him. And he kind of said, well, like, it's important for me to have that balance. Like, I don't want to just, like, work my ass off day and night. Then he started coming in, and he's in at 5 a.m. And, yeah. you know, and then he's leaving at 10 p.m. every <laughs> night. And you're like, what's going on, dude? Do you want to go home? Like, he's like, no, 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 I'm just getting some work done. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, so it's like just interviews are, you know, we all, some, some, and some people, on the contrary, some execs I've interviewed, Everybody came out saying this is a phenomenal person, hired him in a heartbeat. And then you do some backdoors, and every CEO they worked for, like three CEOs that one person had worked for, all three said, I don't even talk to that guy. I wouldn't even get, you know, run away. <laughs> <laughs> That's a bad reference, by the way. Yep. <laughs> it's like an all time bad reference. Okay, this next yep. question is, is kind of uh, interesting because you actually just asked. Um, uh, a group of us this the other day, which is, so I'm going to ask you back, why do you think Clubhouse has been so successful? Oh, uh, well, I mean, this is my first session, so I don't actually, <laughs> I, I don't 100% know, but I, my hunch is it's, it's kind of like, you know, pe people go home and they watch TV or turn on the radio, except you can kind of interact with it as well. Live. Uh, yeah. And, you know, and I think audio is more comfortable also, you know, you don't have to, you know, care about what you look like and stuff. Uh, yeah. But I don't know, what do you think? Yeah, so, you know, I actually think it starts with Paul and Rohan, the founders. Um, you know, they, they've been kind of working around this uh, kind of space and social things for, you know, almost two decades. And, you know, they they hit on a, a new behavior, which is like really the big, in, in my view, the big thing missing from our entire society right now, which is conversations. We just lost conversations. You know, you can't have a conversation on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, you know, at least in my view that it's, or it's really hard. Um, yeah. And so all of a sudden, and then, you know, you add the pandemic to that and you really can't have conversations. And then Zoom is, 
exhausting. Um, you know, yeah. it's, it's a great and phenomenal tool, but it's really tiring. And here's this thing where you can have this very comfortable, very enjoyable conversation, um, which is amazing. And then the those, you know, they designed such a beautiful product against it where, you know, the conversation sounds like we're in the room together. Uh, it's extremely nice. It, you know, the interface is beautiful. And then you get an instant audience that finds all the people who want to listen to your conversation for you. So it's just, a, you know, I think it's a, 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 a unbelievably timely idea, you know, executed as well as you could possibly execute something, you know, given, you know, they don't have more people. I know a lot of uh, people that want the Android version and all that kind of thing, which is, which is coming up. Good problems to have. Uh, I, yeah. I think you gave, I asked this question and you, you give another pretty good answer too, I think. Uh, which is, yeah. you know, if you were, wh why not just set, set Zoom off and turn off the video? Well, Zoom, you got to invite all these people. Like you, you can't, it's not just, yeah. you know, you would have to set up invites and, you know, figure out who you're going to invite and do that. But that's, it's different here, right? It's already set up. People can show up, you know, tune in whenever they want. So that also like creates a different sort of crowd behavior. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a, it, it's an awesome thing. And then it's a, and you can meet new people, you know, you can't meet new people on Zoom very easily. It's a, it's yeah. a very weird process. True. Um, great. So actually, the, the, this next uh, question, um, <laughs> it's, it's uh, would love to learn processes, frameworks for assessing when it's time to fire or level someone and how you decide which path to take, which is really interesting because when you became CEO, so some of you, uh, many of you probably don't know this, but Ali wasn't the original CEO of Databricks. He was the VP of engineering. Um, and <laughs> Uh, very interestingly, the kind of employees of the company came to me and said, um, you know, Ali really should be the CEO, uh, which is, uh, that's never happened in my whole career. Uh, and good for me, I listened to them. But one of the first things you did was you leveled, um, re-leveled a lot of your, basically your entire exec executive team, I think. And yeah. so what was your process? How'd you get to that? And then kind of how's that process evolved? How do you think about firing and leveling people and when to do it? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, obviously it's evolved over time, but uh, first of all, I mean, when do you know it's not working? Well, when you're asking yourself, when you have that first question is like, is this person really, are they doing a good job? You know, that first time you ask someone, you ask someone that you really trust closely to you, like, hey, how's this person doing? How's person? Do you think X is being, you know, is he or she, you know, how's it going with them? it's pretty much done at that point. Uh, now you're going to drag it out for three months or six months to try to figure out if that's, you know, that eerie feeling <laughs> yeah. you had. You <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Just the fact that you're asking that question, that's really interesting. Just asking that question, you know the answer. Yeah, that moment when you ask yeah. yourself, actually, it's once, once you recognize it, you're actually going to ask yourself. You're the first person you ask, you ask yourself one day. Yeah. You say, is this working with this person? Is it like, are they actually... And then the next step you take is you maybe ask a confidant that you really trust. Like, how's, how's he doing or she? It's done. I mean, I have at least not seen it, uh, like, come out and say, oh, I was totally wrong. They're, they're kick-ass. They're awesome. Uh, yeah. so, so that's that part. And I think then, you know, and then we spend the rest of the time, like, justifying to ourselves and others and collecting data. And we probably collect data for too long. And, and if we really mess it up, we wait so long that the person is really utterly failing at their job. Uh, if right. really, if you really, really mess it up, you wait so long that the person quits. Yeah. Uh, well, and, and, and a lot that of people can do cause it. real other implications, right? Because it means you've been torturing them. 
Yeah. yeah. And you know, it's going to have downstream effects. If they're a leader, if it's an IC, it's one thing. If it's a leader, it's going to have huge downstream effects. They hired the wrong team. The team is dysfunctional. And a lot of people do that. And then when the person leaves, they say, oh, it was non-regretted attrition. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it's like, you know, why do you have non-regretted attrition? <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. That, that's a fake, by the way, metric. All those that you have non-regretted attrition, like you either fire them or you regret it. Like you, you can't tolerate non-regretted attrition. That's just such a dumb term. Yeah, and then they say, hey, look, it wasn't working. I wasn't actually yeah. happy with her, him, and, you know, it's actually best for the company and so on. Yeah, you screwed up, and you waited way too long. Like, yeah. you should have done this a long time ago. And it was a, and it kind of became a tragedy over the last year or two when you didn't do it. So, um, so that's that part. But what I think I have done, which I think I've surprised a lot of people at Databricks, at least, um, uh, a lot of times people are like, oh, it's not working, you know, fire this person, let go of them. But oftentimes, I think there is, a, if you figure out what they're really good at and what's actually stopping them from doing their job well, uh, you can find a new role for them where they can be successful. By new role, I don't mean like, oh, this sales guy, we move him to HR and he runs HR, but you can scope down and put them in a new position where it removes some of those things that they're not good at. Like maybe they're not good at hiring. So don't put them in a position where they have that kind of leadership role where they have to hire. Or maybe they're not good at processes. Like figure out a way to, so I've been quite a few people actually in their new role to be super successful. And it's awesome to see because, you know, people come around and tell you, they'll ping you, partners, other people, they'll ping you and say, you know, it's amazing that transformation of this person. That person was such a lame duck like a year or two. I can't believe it that this person now is like succeeding. So that's awesome to see. So I do encourage like, you know, think it's- So how do, you, how do you have that conversation? Because you had, I mean, one of the things that was remarkable at Databricks is you had like five, co-founders who were all vice presidents um, and none of them, of course, had any management experience or anything like that. How'd you have that conversation? Because once you get that title, your family knows you have that title, your friends know you have that title. It's very embarrassing to lose it, isn't it? Well, I mean, first of all, I think, yeah, it is. I mean, it's tough. First of all, it was not like super easy and you give them time and you spend a lot of time with them and talk them through it. And I think the thing that uh, kind of, I was able to do it in the cases I was successful. I wasn't always successful, by the way, the people left. But the cases where when it was successful, I was able to kind of convince them that, look, this is, you're not crushing it. You know it. And you're miserable, okay? And it's not like, you know, it's not awesome. And you, you know it. And it's about to get worse because the workload is about to double, you know? And this new thing I'm proposing to you, your life will be much, much better. And you'll be way more successful. And you don't have to report to a jackass like me. <laughs> so this new person will take care of you much better, you know, like, you know, it's been rough reporting to me. Right. And, you know, this new person. And then I think you should work with a new manager as well. So it's like actually three people involved and making sure that that person also um, that person, uh, you know, sells them on it and becomes like, you know, a little bit of a bad cop, good cop thing. Uh, but if you I think if you can get them to the point where they realize, I think this is better for me, then they stay and they'll, you know, and they blip. And actually, they will tell you later. It's like. Dude, my life is so much better. You you, you yeah. can't even believe it. Like you know, I was so <laughs> exhausted. Like no offense to yeah. you, but you're a tough guy to report to. You know, <laughs> right? Um, so. <laughs> totally intolerant manager. But some people really need the title, and some people really need you know, uh, and they'll leave, and you know they'll, uh, and I think it's the biggest mistake of their career. I mean, I think that's how Peter Principle happens. Uh, yeah. So I've had that too, and they told it to my face that look. I love this company. I love you. Everybody treated me, but 
every two years, I better get that promotion. Just look at my CV or I leave and I'll get that promotion yeah. somewhere else. Yeah. So I'm going to do that. So like, and I'm doing it now. Bye. Yep. You know, I, I, I remember one of those uh, that you had and it, it, it is, uh, it's very short sighted. I think, you know, people get really caught up into this monotonically increasing career, which um, you cut yourself off from a, a lot of learning by doing that or having that idea. Um, yeah, you can have any title anywhere, right? I mean, you can go, yeah. anyone can become a CEO, CMO or CRO of any, like you just, you just have to pick a company that's crappy enough. Yeah, right, right, right. Uh, and you can have that job. Company. Yes, yes. Yeah, what, what's the purpose? So I think the problem, and then once they have that title at that company, now they're stuck at that because now they can't let go of that title. So they'll, that's like, that's how you, you know, go from A player to B player. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. You know, one of the things um, that, that I've found kind of helpful for people sometimes to go through is, you know, okay, well, why do people fail, right? Like you hire like an executive, you go through all the references, you clearly vet them. They obviously had a like a resume that was kind of enough to qualify them for the job. Um, so what happened? And, and I found like that there, there's a few different categories why you need to fire someone. You know, one is they just don't take like, and a lot of companies will find this, they, they'll hire someone from a place like, let's say Google or, or a larger company. And they're just not used to what it means to be in a new company. And, you know, like they wait for like somebody to, you know, for their incoming, they, they're used to getting like 300 emails a day, or they're used to, you know, everybody wanting a piece of their time. And now they're sitting at their desk doing nothing. Um, and they don't like, they can't make the adjustment to your environment. They try and do the job that they had before they got to you but you're a different company and your job is totally different and they have to relearn it and they're not able to do that. So that's, you know, in that you've got to really keep an eye on new execs for the first like month to three months and see if they're going to make it at all. Cause like once, if you're not good in your first month, everybody who works for you is going to hit the bozo bit and you're never going to be good because they're never going to listen to you and you can't be a leader I think that's super followers. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think, yeah. super important. Like, I actually try to, like, you know, they have to get some wins under their belt quickly. Yeah. Like, because everybody, everybody's looking at this person and say, are they working out? Are you good or not? Does the CEO yeah. like him or not? Is it work? You know, they need to get some wins. And if they face plant three, four times, they're done. Uh, you know? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Because yeah. it's not up to you at that point, right? Because nobody's going to listen to them. Like, it doesn't yeah. matter if you think they can do it. They can't. Yeah, and it's kind it. of your it's fault. Over. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's kind of your fault. You know the company, so you know kind of if they're gonna, you know, if they're if they're gonna fail or not, if they're walking into a, you know, you know, building on fire or not. So you can prevent that. So set them up for success, like direct them. I, you know what? I actually do. This is actually pretty cool. You like this? Uh, every new exec that joins Databricks, I'll send them this uh, big debate you had with uh, Mark Andreessen, the one about should you micromanage oh, yeah. uh, new execs or not. So I'll actually send them yeah. that, and I'll say, hey, it's just like part of our culture. So I will micromanage every exec the first six months. And, you know, Ben said it. So, you know, it must be true. Uh, and, and they kind of like say, oh, okay, that makes a lot of sense then, uh, you know. Um, and we kind of follow that. So, so that, you know, you, so that you can actually like kind of install them in your company uh, without yeah. having to tiptoe around each other and not be comfortable because you haven't yet built the trust relationship. So I actually use that article. So I actually give it to every new exec and say, hey, please read this. And then I highlight that paragraph that says, you know, uh, Contrary to you know this belief, I actually think you should micromanage. Uh, you're better off micromanaging the new exec and you know telling them exactly what to do every day. 
um, and I quote that to them, and I have it in yellow. <laughs> no, that's beautiful. I mean, it's absolutely right. You know, it's because they they have all these things, but they don't know your company. They don't know your business. They don't know everything about it. They don't know the people to talk to. They don't know like what the real priority is. And if you under communicate on that, then they they're clueless. They're literally clueless, and they're in 100%. this really important job. And everybody knows they got a big ass stock package. And they're like, why the hell did that guy get a big package? He, he, he doesn't have a clue. Um, so yeah, you you have to roll up the clue train and and uh, fill them up with clues. And that is well, uh, micromanage, yeah. But the thing that's hard, I think, I mean, one thing that I find hard where your article really helps me mm -hmm. is, you know, uh, there's also like a thing of like, what's the culture like over here? And is this new C, you know, like micromanage every little detail here? How's Do I like this place or not? And I find mm -hmm. it helps to give them that article and say, hey, it's just for the six months. We're just following this Ben Horowitz rule, you know? Yeah. And they're like, oh, okay. So it's like a hazing thing. Everybody goes through. Did everybody go through this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's normal. No big deal. And they're like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, that makes it better. Because, you know, yeah, yeah, the right. where they're like, hey, I think I should make this decision myself. I don't think you should actually, like, I actually, we just need to have a talk here about, like, you know, my responsibilities and you. And, you know, I'm, I'm used to be running my own business here. Uh, yeah. 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 No, that's a great point. That's a, I, I'm glad I wrote that. That's an awesome excuse. <laughs> um, so, yeah. so the other one, the kind of common failure mode, the other really common one is um, they run out of gas they, in that they, they, they just can't get to the next level of scale. And I always um, find that the, the key telltale on that is when you start knowing you start having more ideas about what they should be doing with their org than they do. Like you're telling them, Hey, yeah. maybe we should do this or maybe we should, then they're done. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Like, yeah. you know, cause they're spending all their time and their org. And if they can't see like this obvious stuff, cause you're not spending all their time. So if yeah. you're spotting like obvious org charts or how they're doing stuff, it's like, yeah, it's, it's probably too late. But a lot of people say, Oh, don't worry. I'm so good. I'm going to jump in and I'll fix it. Like, you know, I'll yeah, do it for them and that way it'll be great. Yeah. 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 And then you'll, and then you fail to scale, but then you can't do the CEO job. Everybody's counting on you to like set the direction, make all these great decisions, recruit in the best people. And you can't do that because you're trying to run sales. Yeah. Also, you, if you're going to keep the salesperson around, if, if that's the person in, the, in this case and you're doing it, yeah. where's the accountability? Like if, if mistake, well, you're the one that told them because you were like running the org. You know, or yep. if they succeeded, those thanks to you. So, like, what's the point? So the accountability goes away as well. So that's like point plus two. Yeah, and this is kind of, yeah, I think this is one of the things CEOs struggle with the most is, um, and we're going to the next question is, you can't, you can develop like when you're a, an engineering manager, you can develop an engineer. If you're a marketing manager, you can develop a marketeer and all that. You can kind of nurture them and and you know help them, but. If you're a CEO, you can't actually develop executives. You hire these people in to run a big organization and bring a tremendous amount of knowledge and skill in something that isn't even your field. Um, and so when you start trying to rescue them, uh, you know, it's catastrophe. The only thing you can, you can provide them context and let them know, here's the bar, here's what I need. I need you to be world-class. This is how Databricks works. But when you start trying to teach them how to be like a VP of marketing, it's over. Yeah, there's one exception. Yeah. I would say each each exec yeah. grows up in a function. So like, yeah, if Ben Horowitz has a head of product underneath him, 
I, th- yeah. I think he can actually do it. He, he can do quite a bit of things. But if Ben Horowitz is, you know, trying to teach the sales guy to be an awesome head of sales, yeah. Yeah, if Ben Horowitz was more patient, that would probably be true. <laughs> <laughs> I lose my mind. Um, okay, the, the next question is for you. And then I think this is a great one because it kind of gets to this like very mysterious CEO job, which is we'd love to learn uh, what Ali's weekly cad- operating cadence looks like, time spent on staff meetings, recruiting, handling bespoke company people issues, time spent with customers, prospects, product strategy, and how that evolved through the stages to where he is right now. That's a good question. Um, how do I answer that? Uh, actually, I would just not answer it. Um, I, I would say <laughs> like this, you know, because I think it depends. I actually think each CEO is different. And one thing yeah. I've learned early I mean, each on each company is, yeah. is different, right? right? Yeah. Yeah. So I don't think, okay, you know, the perfect formula is 27% with customers. It's like, I think depends on the, the kind of company you have and your strengths and your superpowers mm-hmm. and how you set up the org chart. Is I think you can, you can do whatever you want and spend your time however you want. You just have to set up the org chart so that all the essential parts of the org are being taken care of by the right folks. Uh, yeah. That's, that, that's the thing. Uh, but I, I do do this thing. I, I learned this trick in grad school uh, from a professor that was super successful. Mm-hmm. And he would take on all these crazy, you know, uh, you know, people would ask him, you know, can you fly to Japan? Can you? He would say yes to everything always. And, and he would sort of miss all these appointments. People would fly over from Japan, you know, to visit him and he's out of town. And it's like always like mm-hmm. constant fires. But he was super successful. And at some point, I kind of asked him, like, hey, man, how, how do you do this, all this stuff? Like, and how do you succeed? And he said, look, I just organized my time into three buckets. Uh, the things that I have to nail, you know, I got mm-hmm. you know, to make sure that they're really delivered high quality. Like, and that's that. Then there's the second bucket of things. is like a bunch of things that I keep my eye on. I'll try to do them. Uh, but it's, I'm not going to, it's not like top priority in my mind. And then if there's time, mm-hmm. you know, the rest of the time, if I have more time, I'll spend the time on the other stuff, like, you know, meeting students and so on. So I kind of organize my time this way, too. So we were doing fundraising in the last two months. That was, like, top of my list. I would, you know, make sure I nail that and that the company funding and all of that, because the whole company's future kind of depends on that. And then, <laughs> yep, got to keep yeah. gas in the tank. <laughs> yeah, and then there's a second category of things, which are, well, you got to make sure that a lot of the, you know, that the lights are on. So keep the lights on on the other department. And then if I have time over that, I can, the rest of the time I can spend on one-on-ones or skip levels or talk to some, you know, whatever it's not essential. So that's how I organize my time. That way you kind of can't fail because the most important things you're going to take care of. So, and the rest people will forgive you. Um, So that's kind of how I think about it. Yep. Yeah, no, definitely. So this is interesting. I'm actually curious about that one because, you know, how did you organize your time and how do you do it these days? Yeah, so I uh, so I agree with everything you're saying. The other thing that that I learned early on was, um, you know, high and abstract is worse than flying low and fast. So what I mean by that is kind of, you know, I, I think it's easy to think that the CEO job is okay. You're at eighty thousand feet and you see the whole thing, um, but you don't get too close to any function at any time because you know those details are up to the managers and so forth but the truth of it is at any given point in a company you know something is screwing you up something's a bottleneck like you're not 
selling yeah. effectively enough, like the engineering team isn't hiring or they're not getting products out or their infrastructure is all jacked up or like marketing. And like a CEO is such a kind of special force in a company because they can just catalyze things to happen much more quickly than without you showing up. And so you actually want to spend a fair amount of your time really low to the ground, not in every single function simultaneously, but in the functions that need like a focus. Uh, so that, that would be the other thing I would add to, to what you're saying. I 100% agree. Like, you know, I think you said it well, like figure out what's yeah. the main bottleneck in your company right now yeah. and focus all the attention, uh, you know, on that. Um, I, I do think that's uh, that's super, super critical. People forget about that and they spend, they're busy beavers. They spend a lot of time in meetings and do a lot of stuff, but they're not unblocking the main thing that's basically destroying their company. Yeah, no question, no question, right. <laughs> and and by the way, left to its own devices, like once something gets bad, it stays bad. Like yeah. without like a massive amount of force to crack that bastard open. Yeah, you said, you know, you put it nicely. You said like, you know, the CEO is a massive force that can really help. Yeah. I would say if the CEO doesn't do it, it's not going to be fixed. Some things, they're just, you know, some things only the CEO can come in and structurally reconfigure it and fix it. The left to its own, it's not going to, you know, it's ingrained. Yeah, yeah. Which is why you need leverage out of your executives because you need to have the time to go do that stuff. You can't be, you know, looking over their shoulders, giving them ideas, all that kind of thing. Um, yeah, kind I of getting back thing. to the firing thing. Yeah, 100%. The other thing I would say is not becoming... You know, there's like your calendar. Are you working for your calendar or is your calendar working for you? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think that's important to keep track of because, you know, super yeah. busy. Everybody demands your time. So I've seen these people that become like, you know, it's like, yeah, they're they're just, you know, slave to their calendar and they're just following the stuff that's in it. And uh, whereas I kind of feel like, no, like, you know, I decide what goes on it and I decide what the things I want to do. Proactive. Like if you want to spend next month meeting customers, you clear up the calendar and you put that on it rather than otherwise it fills itself. Yeah. Yep. Yep. It fills itself. And like, yeah, every, everybody wants, it's good for their career to like spend time with you. So, you know, it gets that ridiculous. And then, you know, and then, then vendors and customers and everybody. Um, so yeah, so that's why I don't want to answer the question. I think the person who asked the question, I worry that the person who asked the question is too much thinking about, am I spending enough percentage of time with customers? Am I spending enough time with my investors? Am I spending enough time with yeah. my skip levels? If you're thinking about it that way, you might not be thinking about the major bottlenecks and the major things you should be spending your time on. Right. And the major knowledge that you have to acquire, like, yeah. you know, how, you know, what do people really think of the product? You know, uh, you know, are we like a good place to work? Like, or, or whatever the like key questions are where you have to make decisions to improve the company. You, you've got to get that knowledge and information and yeah, so you that you can low. be smart. Yeah. Yeah. As you said, you got to fly low. At some point I said, Hey, yeah. I need to really, I need to get closer to understanding what this part of the product is doing. So I asked the sales team, set up meetings. And I set yeah. up a bunch of meetings with a bunch of execs, you know, in sure. the companies who had no idea how my product was being used. Uh, yeah. So, you know, so you just have to be proactive and make sure that you're, you're, you're getting the stuff you need on your calendar and doing it your way. Yep. Yeah, no question. So this next question is kind of in that category in that it's a question that I don't want to answer. Um, but like, I do think we, yeah, there, there are important things to say about it. Um, and it is when you're early in a market or trying to create a new market, how should you think about balancing now versus future? I haven't seen many frameworks on evaluating resource allocation for this scenario. On the one hand, laying groundwork, building the infrastructure for new market 
to thrive is necessary. On the other hand, you might be doing the, the hard work for future competitors to skip the hard work. Further, in the early stages, there may be a trade-off between revenue for foundational investments for future growth. Doing both could dilute the value on either side. Doing one or the other could result in a very different company and customer than you thought. How would you think about spending time now to build for the existing market and incrementally to build towards the future versus leaning into building towards the future? Okay, that's a great question. I actually love yeah. to pick your brain too. And I think like what VCs might want might be different from you know, what you might <laughs> want. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, but I, but I kind of, first of all, it's like, what are you trying to do with your company? You want it to like uh -huh. flip it, take it to, you know, make it a $200 million company and sell it, uh, you know, or you're trying to get acquired next year or next couple of years, or, or do you want to really, you know, you want to, you know, swing for the, disrupt the market and go for the Silicon Valley dream, which is, you know, that's what I think people should do. Like if you're betting your life on a startup, do that. Like you don't get that many shots at it. Uh, if you're doing that, I think it depends like what, uh, what, what we're talking about here. I actually fundamentally think startups um, started today should be, you know, you're, up, you're going to be up against major forces, companies with a lot of money, with a lot of developers, with a lot of funding, with huge market reach, huge channels, pricing advantages, bundling advantages. So if you're going to succeed, you better pick a couple of bets that go against the grain. You know, in the case of Databricks, we, we bet on the cloud when everybody said it's stupid. Spend it and say it's stupid, but uh, <laughs> almost everyone, almost yes. many people, even at A16Z, said it's it's a bad idea. Uh, uh, but you didn't, uh, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, so you got to take like a big bet like that, and then go build for that future, and then hopefully it's a calculated bet, so the market actually comes to that. And at that point, suddenly you find yourself ahead of everybody else. If you're just doing the same thing as the big guys are doing, but a little bit better, they're gonna eat you alive. So that's that's how I feel about startups. But on the other hand, if if we're talking about taking shortcuts, like building the pristine, scalable platform, like you know, so on, versus taking shortcuts and just getting up and running, yeah, then I think you should take those shortcuts. I mean, if they're not fundamental to your strategy, then yeah, take lots of tactical shortcuts and scale it as fast as you can. I mean, blitz scale it if you can, and and you know, deal with these good problems later on, the scaling problems and. You know, like all these companies did, Facebook did, Twitter did, all of them, you know, were built on PHP or Ruby, Ruby on Rails. And later they came in and spent the money and fixed it. Yeah, you know, it, it's funny um, that you bring up the the SaaS thing with Databricks, because I remember early on, uh, Jeff Stump, who's, who runs executive talent for us and is absolutely brilliant at, at it. You know, we were working on the head of sales. This was before you became CEO, we worked on the head of sales search. And he's like, you know, the, the word in the market is like they screwed up. They like yielded the market to Cloudera and these guys because all the business is on premise. Um, and I was like, look, your sales guys are dumb. They don't understand. Uh, this is a gift to get this job at this company, Jeff. Like, and, you know, to Jeff's credit, he, he kind of learned, you know, how, how, how to resell it and, and represent it. But it was absolutely a case of kind of giving up a, a tactical position for for a strategic outcome. Uh, I think so. First of all, like if you what you said is really right. If you're in the technology business, product cycles are short. Um, yeah. You know, and so you have to be able to get to the next one, or you're going to die in five to seven years. It's just kind of like the nature of the business. And so, you know, Mark and I yeah. talk about this all the time. One of the reasons uh, 
you know, the, you know, the tech and the kind of press got into such of a kerfuffle is because all of us in tech are going, why are you mad that the thing went online? Like we have to deal with that kind of thing every seven years. And the press is like, no, no, we had this for 400 years, you assholes. <laughs> you know, like, and you fucked it all up. Like we, we, it was fine. And so it was just kind of like this mismatch in product cycle expectation. Uh, but, you know, there are kind of limits, I mean, as you said, to, you know, to betting everything on the future. And like some of the constraints are, one, like there is no strategy without tactics. So first you got to survive, of course. Um, and yeah. then, you know, also uh, momentum in the tech business is essential. So like, you know, once you become yeah. number one, it's really hard to deal with that if you're the competitor. So if you are so long into the future and you let somebody kind of become number one in the category because they've got a better present. You know, that that can be a humongous problem that you never overcome. Yeah, I, I'm thinking more you should be creating the category uh, yeah. while everybody else is. But yeah, absolutely. Like the you know, once once you get to scale and reach, uh, yeah, you can just as you said, product cycles are short. So they'll implement this thing that you've been, you know, polishing overnight. They'll like acquire yeah. a little small tuck in and add it quickly. I do think the part where like I don't know if VCs are always aligned uh, or it's the right thing. I mean, certainly you haven't been this way, but a lot of no. CEOs you talk to in other companies, like there is this obsession with revenue in the early days. Um, mm -hmm. Some VCs, especially late stage VCs, uh, have this obsession with like almost looking at the metrics of a startup as if it was a public company. Like what's your net expansion rate? What's your ARR <laughs> growth year over year? How many sales yeah. reps? How hard it? Which is like, you know, if it's a big market and it's early days, it doesn't matter that much. Uh, it's more important that the product is awesome and that you're going to create that category and conquer it and dominate it and grow for the next 10 years than the exact like juicing the revenue every dollar this particular year. Yeah. No, you know, uh, like, oh, I missed yeah. my number by 1 million. Like, you know, I promised you guys 30 million and I did 29. And it's like, oh, shit, we suck now. Like, we missed our number. <laughs> Yeah, I, I actually think, you know, kind of having been on a lot of boards and, and you know, kind of co-invested with a lot of different kinds of investors, you know, probably the number one way you can screw up your company in terms of an investor is getting somebody who understands the spreadsheet but doesn't understand the actual business, uh, which yeah. is, you know, is very common. And I, you know, coming from like CEO world, I, I would have never thought this, but it, you know, if there's one thing that you really want to watch out for is, okay, somebody understands everything about, and like, look, when you're CEO, it's like, wow, they really do understand the spreadsheet. That's awesome. They know like the magic number shit and like, you know, all the various ratios of every public company and this and that. Um, but that's like, you know, it, it, it's, uh, I wrote a post on this. It's, it's the map. It's not the terrain. Um, yeah. And the terrain is critically important in tech companies because as you said, like, you know, like everything's changing and you've got to get to the next square before the other. And you have to make uh, kind of bets counter to the way the market thinks it should go uh, in order to win. And none of that shows up in the spreadsheet. I think I 100% agree with this. Like you find these folks uh, in the investment community that are really good at, with the financials, you know, and they're really on top of it. And they like to shine, too. You know, oh, yeah. tell you like yeah, how yeah, well yeah. this. Like, you know, if I do the CAC ratio this way and take the inverse of it, there's actually a really interesting 85% DK rate you should be looking at. Like one of the advice I got from one of them was, hey, 
your revenue per employee really sucks. We really need to focus on this. This that should be your focus this year. Yeah. And I was like, dude, I can just stop hiring, and that fixes itself. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. You know. Right. Well, I'm, I, I can just fire everybody in engineering, and our numbers are going to be amazing. Yeah. For the next four quarters, <laughs> and yeah, then we're going to be dead. Yeah, yeah, we're doubling every year, and half of the people are not ramped. So yeah, my revenue is going to look like shit. But if I don't hire those people this year, it'll look amazing in a year. But yeah. how well am I set up for growth next year? So totally. I mean, it's hard to find people to understand your product space and strategy. Yes. Yeah, no, definitely. Definitely. Um, okay. So going to the, the next question, um, saying no to product requirements from large enterprises is a fine art, especially when you are still small and building out the core, differentiating product and trying to win large deals. Um, when does one say no? or reciprocally, yes. And how does one look at this strategically? So this is something I know you've had to deal with. Uh, so- Well, I know you have to deal with it as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you dealt with it better, to be honest with you. I don't know about that. Um, I mean, look, uh, I, there's no clean cut answer. We do have a hurdle rate internally, just yeah. to at least put some you know, formula on it. I think at Databricks it's $200,000 per person week. So like if you want an engineer for one week to build something, you better make sure it generates $200,000 because otherwise just professional services. Uh, so you want to yeah. have, you know, if an engineer is just working on a particular feature for one customer, it's just the particular, you know, it's not, you're not getting the leverage. So you're just doing professional services for one company. But I don't think that should be also a hard and fast rule. I mean, it depends on the strategy. I, I think the truth of the matter is that the really, really big customers, uh, they they do require silver glove treatment and special features and so on. So the question is the trade-off between how much is this one customer worth it and how much can you apply this particular feature to other people in that market? Uh, you know, are there other big enterprises that are going to benefit from it eventually uh, or not? Um, but I think the most important thing I would say is get great product managers in the mix, make them make mm -hmm. the decision. Let them let them interview the customer. Don't listen to what sales said, because uh, mm -hmm. they'll just say, you know, oh, you know, this. I'll, I'll bring in thirty million dollar deal if you just do this feature for me, guaranteed. Like it's gonna come yeah. in thirty million. <laughs> right. Yeah. Go just go build that. You go build it. It's not even what they wanted, and the thirty million dollar deal doesn't even come in because it wasn't even close. Uh, <laughs> so get the product. Yeah. So get the product yeah. managers in there to really suss out. Do you really need this? Ask the five whys. Mm -hmm. Why do you need this? Why this particular feature? What what's going on? Many many times they're really good ones. Like, you know, David on my team, on the product side, mm -hmm. one of our product leaders, he's really good at just asking these five questions. And he'll come out and say, hey, actually, they're okay with it. They don't want, they don't need the feature, actually. I talked to them. Nope, they're totally cool. We'll do a workaround. The, the solutions architects will build something like this. We're done. We're good here. Actually, they've signed off. It's all good. We don't need to do it. So, you know, I mean, I would try to protect engineering as much as possible so they can build for the future. Um, unless it's systematic. Like, unless you're mm -hmm. hitting... A particular segment of crossing the chasm, like if it's like a late majority or a laggard, and you want to go after that market, well, then maybe actually you should have a strategy of building all those uh, one-off features for all of those customers in that kind of uh, market. Yep, yep. Now that that's really good, and I think um, how about uh, how do you think about are there ways to organize engineering to make this problem easier? That's a good question. I mean, Databricks pretty much is divided into mm -hmm. uh, the folks that are working on the sort of future where you almost are not hit at all by any of these uh, sort of requests. 
you know, there's, there's, those teams don't, that's not the kind of demand they have. And then we have platform teams where all of this stuff is there. You know, usually the enterprise one-off features all have to do with security and auditing and budgeting and manageability and big org, you know, back office stuff and integrations. So it is kind of, that way we can control it from a high level based on headcount. Like how many heads do we put on that side of the org and that way so that it doesn't, so at least from an abstract high level, we can we can say that, look, at least it's no more than, right now I think it's no more than 35% of all of our engineering. Yeah, um, yeah. That's working on that kind of stuff, which is a lot by the way, we're an enterprise company, uh, but you have to also build for the future. Uh, but I think really great product management muscle is actually the key. So like, you know, and you'd know more about that than me, Ben. But yeah. getting great product managers in there with the enterprise customers to suss out the requirements. Yep. Yeah. No. Like I, I agree with you. You know, somebody who can get what salespeople often don't do is they, they, they bring back what the customer asks for instead of what the customer wants. And if you have yeah. the right product manager, you can get to okay, what do they really want? And sometimes they shouldn't even want it. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's yeah. like they, they're asking for something that's going to make their life miserable down the line because they're not thinking about it the right way. You know, customers are somewhat smart, but not that smart often. And uh, and I think that's exactly right. Like great product managers being the process. And it also kind of, um, you know, takes you out of the kind of loop of, OK, do we need this for the quarter type of thing, which is great. Uh, yeah, I, I think you're yeah. totally right that, you know, it's like, yeah, it's uh, they're bringing back what the, the feature they want, not why they want it. But I think even the customers, unfortunately, are not even telling you the why. They'll just tell yeah. you, I need this particular, like, I need this. You need to check the box of this. But the great product managers will go out and say, okay, that's great. We'll build it for you. But tell me just why again. Why did you need this? Oh, I need it for this reason. Oh, why, why that? And then they keep sort of digging and get the context around it. And they figure out, you know, actually, you know, you can solve this whole thing this other way. We have a partner that has an integration that actually solves this whole thing. You should talk yeah. to them. Oh, I didn't know. That's awesome. That's even better. Like, you know, okay, problem gone. Yep. <laughs> right, 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 right. Instead of like the most expensive engineering project of all times. <laughs> it's just funny. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We also have, we also have, we also track all the blocked revenue on features. Uh, yeah. And so there is a little bit of accountability and there is this kind of memory in the organization that, hey, you said 5 million would come in on this deal if we built this yeah. thing. What's up with that? Like we built it and where's the 5 million? <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> so, that, so that way it becomes a repeated game in which you mm -hmm. kind of have to earn the trust across product management. Like if I tell you this revenue is going to come in, it is going to come in because if it doesn't, next time you probably will not prioritize this feature for me. Right. You've got a zero by your name. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So quickly, uh, Mark slash Andy Grove, do you have any uh, things from the conversation now that you're you're seated in a nice, comfortable spot? <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. So, hey, guys, hey guys, great so far. Hey, hey, Ali, how you doing? You're on mute. Oh, sorry, a little no, lag. It's, no, 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 no. Oh, you're not. Mute. Ali's on mute. Yeah, sorry about that. How are you doing, Mark? <laughs> hey, good. Hey, so I, you know, you guys had this great. Like, I, I don't want to mire the conversation and the, the topic you guys started out earlier on about people who aren't working out and get fired. But like, I could imagine a lot of people listening to this who were thinking like, okay, that was like a great description of like the CEO process of figuring mm -hmm. out when when somebody's not working out and figuring out what to do about it. Um, I guess there's two questions as an employee that I would have after listening to you guys. Um, so one question is like. Suppose I'm the person Ali was talking about where it's like, okay, I'm like kind of aware, like I'm working Ali for you and I'm kind of aware, you know, I'm, I'm in New York and, and I'm, 
I'm kind of aware that I'm not doing that great. Um, but like, nobody's said anything to me yet. You know, I'm not getting like enthusiasm for my manager, but like, you know, they seem fine with me, but like, this doesn't feel, feels like there's some twinges of like, okay, maybe this is not quite working out. And I don't quite know where I stand. Um, what should I do at that point to try to, you know, either figure out what's going on or figure out how to, you know, either dismiss the worry or figure out how I need to get to it. You know, maybe I can be proactively get to a better place before it gets to the point you guys are talking about. Yeah, Ben, want to go? Yeah. So, I mean, I do think that, you know, from the employee perspective, uh, initiating the conversation, if it has, like, if you sense it, you, you got to initiate it. Um, and you know, it's a scary thing because you don't, it's one of the things, the thing that takes the most courage, I think, in, in life is asking the question that you don't want to know the answer to. Um, but, you know, generally, um, that's a pretty good way to start to get to the reality. Uh, and I don't think like, but guessing is is very dangerous because it's, it's because you don't know what you should do. Um, or like where you're failing that, that, that you have that kind of, uh, you know, you're no, no man's land, so to speak is, is what I would say. So like, I think the only way out is up and out by like just going and saying, look, how am I doing? Like, am I, am I going to get promoted? Am I going to get fired? Am I going to get like no raise? Like what is my status? Yeah. And I would say, if you're wondering how are you doing and you're not sure you're in this kind of no man's land, let me tell you, you're not doing well. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's, that's the good. answer. You're not doing well. You're not crushing it. Yeah. You would know it if you were crushing it. So you're not doing well. And second, maybe go by, you know, so your manager is not great either because they should have told you that. So right. the fact that you're kind of in this gray zone, that's not great. Go buy, you know, a copy of Hard Thing About Hard Things and give it to your boss. Uh, <laughs> you know, and they should come <laughs> talk to you. Thank you for selling books. I appreciate that. No, but your company should really be having those conversations with people. Like you should yeah. be giving direct feedback all the time. Like this kind of passive aggressive shit where people don't know where they're standing and you haven't shared it with them. And like, I don't think um, people who are conflict avoiding, that's, they should, you know, you should really avoid that in a, in a boss. I mean, we're talking boss talk. I don't yeah. think great bosses avoid conflict and you know so actually the 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 number one skill of the boss i think is to be uh conflict have uh, whatever the opposite of conflict versus like conflict ready um because it, it, that that was always the reason why i would remove someone as a manager if they if they didn't take the conflict it's the most maybe you should write a book thing. about that wait you already yeah. did yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> well, but okay, it's so, it's tricky. Oh. It's tricky, though, right? Because, like, as you guys know, like, the, you know, the sort of Silicon Valley culture, there is a lot of passive aggressiveness. Like, you know, it's California, yep. um, and so you know, yeah. Ali, Ali, you're not passive aggressive, but like a lot of your peers, like at least have elements of that in their personality. And so, like, it's not uncommon for people to run into passive aggressive bosses. I don't think, right? Yeah, no, I think you're getting at the heart of the issue. I mean, that's why a lot of people are struggling. I don't think. I mean, I do think this is boss talk. I think if, if you're passive aggressive or if you're not direct and you can't handle conflict, you're probably not a great boss. You need to work on that. I don't know if you can overcome it. Maybe you can, maybe there's coaching and so on, but yeah, that's not great. How are you going to lead, tell people what to do and where to go and which direction we're going to go if, you, if, you, if you're shying away from telling them when there's an issue? Uh, that's not great. So, um, so, you know, you, so you probably have, your boss is probably not great if you're like in that no man's land. And, and secondly, you're probably not doing well. 
Yeah. Yeah. The other question, the other question jumped out. You, you guys alluded to something I think maybe be helpful, helpful to expand on. So, you know, normally when you have, you know, when you kind of think about this topic of like basically how's an employee doing, are they going to get promoted or raised or fired or whatever? It's, it's, you know, the typical thing is it's a binary phenomenon, right? Or it's like the employee and the manager. And that's a lot of what you guys have been talking about. Now, obviously that's very important. Um, but there's this third component, right? Which you guys alluded to earlier, which is basically the peers, right? The team. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so maybe you guys could expand a little bit more on basically the role of the team in assessing basically the performance of one of its members and like what role, and, you know, sort of this sort of maybe nebulous concept of like credibility um, or confidence that the, the team has in, in its own members, um, you know, the peers have, you know, with each other. Um, and, and maybe talk about like how should both employees and bosses think about the role of the team and the peers uh, in assessing the performance of an individual. Like, and, and you know, can the team get too harsh? Can the team be too lenient? You know, should the boss always listen to the team, sometimes listen to the team? Um, yeah, so that, that question. That's a great yeah. question. Yeah, do you want to start, Ali? I have a lot of thoughts on that one. That, well, that's a really complicated that situation. Yeah, I would split it up on what do your peers think about you? And what do your peers think? Are you successful with your peers? What's the peer situation is one. The other one is the people reporting to that person, you know, that leader. How do they feel about it? And, you know, there's a lot of nuances. I'll tell you one thing that's surprising, uh, you know, is just because their team t- doing well doesn't mean they're doing well. Yep. Uh, you know, I've had execs. And when I was, you know, for, in the beginning when I was CEO, I wasn't sure. Like, I certainly don't think they're doing well, this person. They're not executing well, in my opinion. I think they're mediocre at best. But then you start talking to their team, like, how's the person doing? And, you know, and the people you trust in that team start opening up to you. And they're like, yeah, I think they're doing pretty well, actually. That doesn't mean necessarily that they're actually, you know, much better. You know, the team, they, they hear certain things, certain targets, you know, they live in a different bubble. So everybody has a different perspective in the organization. Uh, so that's just one thing to watch out for. That just because that team says that their leader is doing a great job doesn't necessarily mean that they are actually. That's that's 100% true. The other thing is the, the, the reverse of that um, does turn out to be true. So if the team thinks the leader is a bozo, and uh, yeah. can't enough. do the job, then they're done because yeah. like the output of the manager is equal to the output of the team, as you well know, yeah. Andy Grove. Uh, <laughs> and you know, that that's just, a, that's a wrap. Um, yeah. peers, is, peers is really tricky because like peers are in competition with each other to some degree, um, you know, particularly depending on the personality of the peers. And then sometimes peers get into conflicts uh, and, those conflicts cause them to, I, I would say, misevaluate the peers. And then the peer doesn't have a great, they have a view into a piece of what the exec is doing, but not all of what they're doing. So, you know, one requirement for an effective executive is that they have to be effective at working with the peers that they need to work with. Like you can't, uh, <clears throat> like you can't run sales and everybody in engineering hates you. Like that's going to be a problem. You're not going to be able to succeed in your job. And so like, that's a requirement, but that's an interesting requirement in that it's one of the few that you can tell the sales guy, like, if you don't fix this, you're fired. And I've seen people fix that one. Yeah. um, For sure. It's actually Uh, a culture principle at Databricks. We actually have it as a culture principle, which is, you know, focused on, we call the first team, which is focus on your, focus on your peers and what's best for the company, not your own team that reports to you. 
Yeah, no, that's uh, a great that's a great principle because it, it it makes it clear that that's a requirement. Um, so, look, ultimately, you know, as CEO, you you can't. I mean, to answer your question, Mark, you can't actually lean on the team to evaluate anybody. Um, they had their data points and their input. Um, and then if a leader loses a team, you know, like you're not a leader if you don't have any followers. Like that's just, a, yeah. <laughs> that just is what it is. <laughs> um, you know, that's a definition. Uh, yeah. So you get into that kind of thing, but like eventually, like you've got to evaluate like how toxic is it? Like how bad is it? How, you know, how, how little confidence um, do they have? All those kinds of things. Yeah, and it's actually, it's yeah. not even that surprising that their team might love the person, uh, especially if they were the leader of the team. You know, if if yeah. you hired a weak leader and then hired a team of B players, yeah, it's like mind melt. Absolutely. Yeah. I can keep going, but that, those are my top my, my top two. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, we're coming up on the hour, and I think that um, you know, like this has been a lot of fun and. It's, I'm overwhelmed by like just the number of people listening and, and uh, it's really exciting. We thank you all for coming and not only the number of people living li listening, but I'm looking at some really outstanding CEOs uh, listening and we really appreciate it. Um, we are gonna do um, Boss Talk every uh, Tuesday at 5 p.m. And so you can listen in and it, it will be Ali and me. And then uh, look, if you're, uh, CEO and you got something to say, um, you know, definitely reach out to us too, because I see some people who I'd love to hear from. And we're just going to talk boss stuff and all the gnarly things that you have to do when you run one of these companies. And uh, it's a oftentimes thankless job. Uh, but hopefully, you know, this conversation will will make it uh, a little easier. Um, and so I'd like to thank uh, my co-host, Ali, um, my other co-host, Mark, and then, of course, Felicia, who just came here to bring us some listeners. That's awesome. Thank you, everyone. Looking forward okay. to doing Th this next week. Th okay. Thanks, everyone. Good. Thanks, thanks everybody. Bye. Bye. Thank you, guys.